Hey everybody, James Briarton here with a note about this week's episode. You're about to listen to a conversation we had with the University of Georgia's Pam Knox all about understanding the ongoing drought. The interview was recorded live during our weekly broadcast on social media on Wednesday, October the 23rd. The following day, we got the new drought monitor. So you'll hear us talk about in the episode anticipating the brand new drought monitor. Well, I have it now for you right here in front of me. It comes out each and every Thursday. And still 77% of South Carolina and 62% of North Carolina remain in some sort of drought condition. In the episode, we're going to talk about what we anticipate in that report. And one of the things you'll hear us question is whether or not any of the rain again from the remnants of tropical storm Nestor made any difference and the answer to that question is no not really we're still looking at pockets of severe and extreme drought some of the worst being in areas of South Carolina in the Sand Hills and the upstate and even parts into the Midland however the coastal areas of South Carolina and the coastal areas of North Carolina are doing just fine with regards to drought conditions because they had so much rain dumped on them earlier in the year from Hurricane Dorian we do have more rain in the forecast for this weekend can't do us any harm when it comes to the drought condition but this will be an ongoing process over the course of the next few weeks to see if we can balance this back out so again we get new drought monitors out every thursday we talk about them during our live show wednesday night what we anticipate to see the next day and i wanted to give you that context as now you sit back and listen to this interview with pam knox understanding everything that goes into monitoring and forecasting the ongoing drought that we're experiencing here in the Southeast. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together, show number 297 tonight. With us, we have Miss Pam Knox. She is an agricultural climatologist for the University of Georgia. And as you all know, we've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks, even on our show. Um, the Southeast and the Southeast is in the midst of a drought. And so we're going to talk about drought and what a drought means. Um, how we uh, get um, the drought monitor going with the different stages and just the effects um, that the drought's having on the southeast. So we are happy to have Miss Pam on with us tonight. We are live streaming right now, and part of that is communicating with you. So if you have any questions, any comments throughout the show, um, you can drop them in the comment bar. Uh, we'll be monitoring those. So if you have any questions about the drought, maybe uh, how it's affecting your area, and you want to ask them to Pam, uh, go ahead and do that. Uh, we'll also be talking about the tropics and a little bit of weather news later on in the show. So if you have any questions about those, you can submit those as well. And at the end of the show, we'll let Pam give out some information on how you can follow her work and how you can keep up with the drought uh, that is affecting your area. So we're happy to have everyone with us tonight. Let's go ahead and get into the show tonight. We'll bring in our guest, Miss Pam Knox. Pam, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, we hope you're uh, doing well this evening. Oh, thank you. I'm really happy to be on here. 
we're, we're excited to have you. Uh, we were talking before the show. We've not really uh, dived into the uh, the drought uh, topic. We've talked a little bit about it, but not really in depth. So we're looking forward to tonight's uh, program and all the information that you have for us. So before uh, we kind of get into the topic tonight, this is a question we always ask our guests. How did you get caught up in this crazy weather world that we all are uh, involved in? So uh, what's your weather story? Oh, well, I started out being interested in the weather when I was in the third grade. I lived up in Michigan at the time, and a tornado came two blocks from my house on April 21, the Friday night, 1967. Um, you can calculate how old I'm, I am if you want. Um, and, you know, it made a big impression on me as a third grader, although I didn't really think about going into meteorology until I was finishing college. And my graduate, my degrees in college were meteorology, or uh, let me step back. My degrees in college were physics and math. And I just really was sick of doing physics. And so I thought, well, what can I do with my physics background that will let me look out the window? And so I looked out the window and I thought, well, meteorology is the way to go. So I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison um, and uh, got a meteorology degree there and then uh, worked for the Weather Service for a while in the headquarters in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, taught college for a while and then went back to graduate school to get a PhD, but I didn't like what I was doing. And so I ended up as the Wisconsin state climatologist instead. And that's kind of how I made the transition from meteorology to climatology, although I do both. Um, and since then I've had various jobs looking at climate and especially in the last uh, 10 years or so looking at climate and agriculture. So tell us a little bit about drought, like define what drought is and, and um, how we, how we come about getting into a drought situation. Sure. Well, I mean, drought is one of these things that is a combination of a bunch of different factors. But generally speaking, drought is um, the, the lack of, of moisture, the lack of rainfall. Um, or it, sometimes you can have drought even if you have rain, if the temperatures are high because the evapotranspiration uh, sucks all the, the moisture out of the soil, out of all the, out of the plants. And so it's really the water balance um, is negative. Um, and, and that can be caused most of the time by natural uh, conditions. So either you can have a, a heat spell and no rain with a high pressure overhead, or you can just have a long period where it doesn't really rain very much. You might still get some, but just not a lot. But droughts can be caused by other things as well. Um, and so there's a variety of different kinds of drought, and those can be different on different time scales, uh, different spatial scales. And, but the, the really the common thing there is the lack of water. Understood. Yeah, you're you're talking about the types of drought. Um, we have regular drought, flash drought. Would you like to elaborate a little bit on the types the types that we see? I mean, we, we see the drought monitor as one thing, yep. like D1 through D5. But tell us a little bit more detail about how you come to these these um, sort of more scientific terms. Yeah. Well, a, a flash drought is is just a drought that comes on very quickly. So it can also go away very quickly. We're kind of waiting to see what this one does. But a flash drought is one that develops very quickly over a short period of time. The drought that we're in now, um, for a lot of the south, southeast, really didn't start until about Labor Day. Um, if you look at the rainfall amounts up to that time, rainfall amount was actually pretty decent across a lot of the southeast. And since then, you know, the rain completely shut down. We had a big high pressure over us and the temperatures were record setting across most of the Southeast. And so that really, really hot temperatures just cause evapotranspiration and evaporation to increase 
just drastically. And that's what accelerated it. But I mean, drought comes in different varieties. Um, the, the kind of flash drought we're in now is usually associated with agricultural drought, um, which means there's not enough water for the plants. Um, plants have to have regular water, usually about an inch a week, just depending on where they are in their growing um, condition. But if they don't have that, then they start, the leaves will start to curl up and they'll start to wilt. Um, and so the short-term drought is a drought that's mostly manifested in how the plants and crops do. That drought can transition into a longer-term drought. That's what we call a hydrologic drought. In a hydrologic drought, you start to see decreases in things like the lake levels or stream flows. Um, and if it really lasts a long time, you'll see that also in the groundwater levels. And so generally the agricultural drought is more of a short-term thing. Hydrologic drought is a longer-term thing, but you can have both at the same time. And in the drought monitor, they try to capture both in a single map, which doesn't always work so well. Um, but if you look at the maps, you can see an S for short-term and an L for long-term. So yeah, your hyd the hydrological aspects would refer to more to the watershed as well, correct? Or understood. Um, I'm going to pass this off to Evan just a second. One and two. Um, ask you a quick question. When when um, talk a little bit about D1 through D5. Like people hear, hey, we're in a D3 drought. You know, we just we'll tag the word with like severe or we'll go to extreme on D4, whatnot. But give us a little insight on the scale. Yeah. Um, the, the drought scale starts with D0, which is actually not considered to be drought. That's just considered to be abnormally dry. Moderate drought is a D1 drought. Um, the next most is severe drought, which is a D2 drought. Then extreme is D3, and D4 is exceptional drought. And so those each ramp up there. Basically, you'd have to consider them as more and more rare. So that if you're talking about a D4 drought, it might be something that would happen on the average only once every 50 years or so, whereas a D3 drought, maybe once every 25 years, um, a D, D1 drought, maybe more like every 10 years or so. So that's more frequent. Um, so the, the really intensive droughts are the ones that are not supposed to happen all that often, although in, in practice, they happen a lot more often than those return periods might say. Yeah, but so that, that kind of piqued my interest there because I feel like we've been in, at least I used to live in the Charlotte area, and I feel like we've been in that D1 drought multiple times over the last you know, 15 years. Um, so that, that's, that's interesting. I didn't realize there was you know, a specified return period on that. Um, so kind of transitioning away from the terminology and all of that, can you tell us a little bit about the specifics of the agricultural impacts of what we're seeing right now in the Carolinas and the Southeast? Sure. Um, you know, right now we're towards the end of the growing season. In fact, I, there's places in Georgia that have already seen frost this year. So the end of the growing season, um, places in the mountains where you might expect it, you know. Um, the cotton looks great. The cotton has been pretty good this year. The cotton, at least around Georgia, um, is nice and dry and fluffy and ready to go. And, and more than half of it's been harvested already. So when you harvest something like cotton, you want it to be dry. And they're actually ahead of, of normal this year because it's been so dry, they've been able to get out in the fields and they've been able to harvest a lot quicker than they would otherwise. And I think there was a, probably a little bit of concern in trying to get that done quickly when Nestor was coming because you know Nestor gets everything wet and then it's hard to get the, the machines in the fields and the cotton gets wet and it doesn't really harvest very well. Now there's other things like cotton or like uh, peanuts that have really been affected by that in a negative way. Um, peanuts, when they're harvested, you, you kind of 
pull them up from the ground and you invert them and you let them sit there for a few days and then you go in and you you pull the, the nuts off the plants. But the drought has caused the ground to be so hard that they have not been able to get those peanuts out of the ground. And if they try to force it, they leave a lot of the nuts behind. So that means that their yield goes way down because they're just leaving stuff in the field where they should be able to pull it in. So they've been waiting desperately for some rain to soften up the soil. Um, and I think they finally gotten that. I know that they've really been trying to catch up on harvesting peanuts. You can, they'll, they'll wait for a while in the ground, but you don't want to wait too long because then they get past maturity and then the quality goes down, and you don't get paid as much. So I had to learn all this stuff about, you know, the crops and, and economic importance of the crops for the farmers, which I never really had to learn before. Uh, there's other crops. Well, corn is mostly done unless they're growing corn after something else, but uh, Corn, at certain times of year, corn is very susceptible to drought. Uh, for example, in 2016, um, we had drought that started in uh, the Southern Appalachian, so Northwest uh, Georgia, Northeast Alabama, and so on. And it hit right at the time the corn was pollinating. The, and the silk was so dry that the pollen wouldn't stick. And so none of the corn pollinated and they lost their whole yield because the corn never grew ears. And it wasn't even in drought yet then. It was just a dry spell, um, but it happens so quickly. If it happens at just the right or the wrong time, um, it can really cause problems that can show up really a couple months later. That, that's that's fascinating how different plants can respond. You know, like you said, some for you know, cotton are somewhat responding positively to this drought because of their harvesting procedures, whereas peanuts are a whole lot harder to get out of the ground. Um, one more question before I throw it off to Scotty. What's, what's it like for tobacco? Because I know that's a big crop here in the Carolinas. How is that reacting? Yeah, tobacco is important because, you know, they don't want it to be too wet because then the quality goes way down. And so um, there are certain things that they can do to keep it from getting wet. They'll leave it in the, in the drying um, sheds a little bit longer. Uh, but they have to really watch that. There's, there's a certain amount they can do with, with mechanical drying as well. Um, so, but that's expensive because then they got to run the heaters and it costs diesel fuel, just like if you're going out harvesting, you know, you got to pay for the diesel fuel to run the tractors. And so that's all part of the factor as well. But tobacco is, is something that's definitely weather sensitive as well. And maybe, maybe one of the listeners tonight can shed a little bit more light on that. That'd be great to hear. All right. All you, Scotty. Thank you, Evan. Uh, Pam, one thing you were talking a little bit about the cotton harvest, it, it's, it's, kind of been a positive because it's been so dry. Any other harvests that um, this has kind of been a, a positive for? Yeah, probably the single most important um, specialty crop in, in uh, Georgia, northern Georgia especially, and in western North Carolina and western South Carolina is grapes, grapes for wine. And they love it dry um, because most of the grapes, for one thing, most of the grapes are irrigated because it's a high value crop, so they're not going to risk losing it. And a lot of it is drip irrigation, so they're not like spraying the grapes because they're more likely to get fungal diseases, but they're watering them through the roots. But if the grapes stay dry, um, the chances of getting diseases that are going to rot the grapes instead of letting them ripen goes down. Plus, the heat really concentrates the sugar in those grapes. And so um, that's really great for winemaking. And so I think that the wine growers, um, wine grape growers this year have really been loving this weather. And so for maybe crops that are going to be happening early next year, let's say peach, strawberry, things like that, do we kind of know what this flash drought, any effects it, it, it may have on, on the crops that 
uh, that we may see early next year? I've talked to a few of the of the blueberry growers and the peach growers and and some of those other. Of course, right now they're really not very active. We're kind of in between seasons because those harvests happened earlier this year before it really got dry. Um, they're having problems keeping enough water on the plants to keep them healthy because it's been so hot that they just really have to put a lot of water on. So it may be that next year they'll see reduced fruit set because it's been dry. So they haven't been able to put as many leaves on or as many buds uh, for next year's flowers. But it's probably a little too early to say that. And of course, you know, we've got the whole winter to go through. So that's going to affect things as well. So crop wise, maybe this might have not been a bad time to have a drought. I mean, is that maybe safe to say, or I know it's never a good time to have drought, but. Yeah, I think it depends what you're growing. I mean, I, I definitely think that it could be worse. It has been worse than some of the previous droughts. Um, if you're growing cotton, I think it's been mostly minor issues and maybe even some positives. If you're growing peanuts, uh, if you're growing irrigated peanuts, it really hasn't been an issue. And a lot of people now grow irrigated peanuts. So they can, they can water the soil and make it soft enough to harvest. Um, it's the, the maybe 40% of growers that are dryland farmers that are really having to struggle with this. And so that partly, that partly makes a difference as well. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's really all over the place. There's, there's other things besides agriculture that have benefited from the drought, things like construction. You know, if you never have any rain, you can get way ahead on your construction. And so I think that's one thing that's been doing well. I think tourism in a large part has done well because people like to go out and do things, uh, golfing or, or tubing or whatever like that. As long as there's enough water in the rivers, um, then I think people really have been able to go out and enjoy that. And so uh, just like anything else, drought isn't bad for everybody or every, every sector of the economy. But for those that's negatively affected, it's been really bad. Yeah, and one thing that um, this drought has hit is also a location that was hit by Hurricane Michael last year. Um, so it's kind of been a double whammy for maybe folks in the Panhandle, Florida, South, Southern Georgia. Um, have, have you been able to talk with any of those folks and kind of the back-to-back, -back, you know, worst-case scenarios for, for them? How has it, how's it affected those folks? Well, a lot of the crop farmers, you know, they, they work year to year, so they might have lost their crop that last year, but they might have been able to get something in this year. Um, and so uh, one of the bad things is that because of uh, government problems, they haven't even gotten paid for last year's losses yet. So they're really having to work out of their bank accounts. And that's been really tough on farmers um, from last year's losses for Michael. Um, in some cases, there's a lot of trash that's been scattered around the fields that makes it hard to draw the to the machinery through. And so I think that slowed things down. For some of the biggest um, products that have been hit have been the pecans, which took a huge loss from Michael last year and are still suffering from that now. And forestry, because so many trees went down um, in Michael that somebody was telling me today at the meeting that um, if you took all the trees and put them on log trucks, um, this is just for Georgia, it doesn't even count Florida, you could put them on log trucks three abreast on the highway all the way from here to Seattle and back. That's how many trees went down in Michael, just the forestry. Um, pecan trees, they had a tremendous loss. But you know, the, the, the funny thing is, and I didn't really think about this, was that a lot of the trees that are still standing had problems too because the wind is so turbulent that it shook the trees, it, it caused a lot of damage to the roots, and it also twisted 
the trunks. And so there's a lot of cracking in the trunk. So some trees that survived the storm had to be cut down because they were getting all kinds of diseases because of the ability of pests to get into the trunks. So those are the kind, and you know, once those are gone, it takes probably eight to 10 years before new trees that you plant instead can really start producing again. So that's 10 years that they don't have an income. You know, Pam, back in 2016, you referenced to that drought um, a few minutes ago. Um, a lot of Western North Carolina, upstate South Carolina was affected with wildfires. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I know now that we've, we've kind of got a, a few rainy events moved through the area. So maybe the concern is a little bit lower. It's, it's still elevated. Yeah. Um, talk, talk to folks who may not kind of understand the drought and the wildfire science behind that, how this drought. Uh, really amplifies the chance yeah. for, for wildfires. Yeah. Wildfires in the east are a little different than they are in the west because, of course, we don't have as widespread tracts of forest land as they do, say, out in west in California and places like that. But we still do have areas like western North Carolina or the Okefenokee swamps down in southeast Georgia where there are pretty good stands of trees. And, you know, if you have the trees go for a long time, they drop a lot of leaves. So there's a layer on the ground that can really get dry pretty quickly. Um, and if you have a drought, then of course the trees also get dry, they start to um, shed their leaves and so on. And so if you have that hot, dry weather, it doesn't take a whole lot of trigger to get the fires going. Now, I mean, typically another difference is that in the Southeast, we're a lot more humid than they are in California. You're not gonna see a day where it's 90 degrees out and the relative humidity is 10%. It doesn't happen here. So that's one thing that keeps us from getting really big forest fires the way that we do out west. But we're still susceptible to that. And because we don't get them very often, it really lets that duff layer build up. And so when we do get fires like we did in 2016, it can be a really big issue. I know I, there were days when I walked out of work um, and I could just smell the fires. And I'm in Athens, which is probably 100 miles from where those fires were. But there was so much smoke in the air that you could smell them from that far away. More about the drought and our conversation with Pam Knox after this very short break. We're back now continuing our conversation with the University of Georgia's Pam Knox, helping us understand the ongoing drought conditions here in the Carolinas. Uh, we were talking a little bit about farmers and the drought monitors. So when and the new drought monitor is coming out tomorrow. So yeah. when these folks get together, this is something I, I don't really know a lot about. Uh, who, who determines this drought monitor? What, what, who all is at that table to determine this is um, D1, D2, D3? Who yeah. has a say? Um, do farmers have a say? And if so, uh, do they get any compensation if they're in a certain drought? How does that all work out? Sure. Um, well, I mean, first thing to keep in mind is that there's different kinds of drought declarations. Every state has their own way of doing it. Uh, in Georgia, it's mostly... Uh, done by the Environmental Protection Division. It's mostly based on water supplies. So they just this week put a, a level one drought response, which is basically just education about water conservation. But South Carolina's got their own group of people that, that looks at the drought, and North Carolina's got their own group of people that looks at the drought. Those are all the state agencies. They have specific state things that they need to do. The drought monitor is a national product. So there's, there's a group of about eight or nine um, different people that take turns drawing the maps. And it's a whole process where 
um, they pull in all this data where you're looking at rainfall deficits over three months, six months, 12 months. You're looking at stream flows, you're looking at groundwater levels, um, you're looking at soil moisture levels and so on, and trying to get a feel for you know, how strong the drought is and exactly where it is. And remember, there's 3,000 counties across the U.S., and they have to draw this map to include all those. Um, so they solicit information from the, the drought groups that are in, for example, North Carolina and South Carolina. They talk to the state climatologist in Georgia and in Alabama. Um, all these people contribute. They put out a draft, and people will say, no, that doesn't look quite right, or yeah, you've captured it. Um, the idea is that they're going for a convergence of evidence. That's what they always talk about. So it's not any one thing that's going to cause a line to be drawn in a certain place, but it's going to be agreement between um, the people that are looking at it, between the data that really is backing it up. But they also take in input from people um, through things like the Drought Impact Reporter, uh, which you can go to. And you can actually file a report. You can post pictures. I've seen pictures from Georgia where they've shown stream beds that are completely dry. Um, one of the earliest groups that got hit in Georgia with this drought has been uh, livestock producers because when it dried up, they couldn't grow pastures for their, for their animals. So they were having to feed hay that they usually store for over the winter. And some places were feeding hay already as early as July 1st. And so they really been hit hard by that because that hay is what they were gonna use to get through the winter. So now they're going to probably have to either buy hay or sell animals. Um, so the drought reporter is people that that will write it. They don't get paid for it, but you know if they if they're interested, they can write, um, send in pictures, or talk about how dry it's been. And the drought the drought um, author drought monitor authors do look at that information, and that's part of their um, convergence of evidence. So if they haven't really been noticing bad problems, but they're getting a lot of reports about it then that's gonna pique their interest and they're gonna probably go in and look at things a little bit more carefully. Um, and so those are all different things. Now, I mean, you have to, they also have to be careful because there's some financial benefits to having certain drought levels, um, especially the, the, if you have a D2 level drought for eight weeks, you get a, a payment of one month's worth of um, forage, the, the value of the forage. But if it goes up to D3, even if it only goes up for a single week, they get, they get three months worth of payment. So there's a certain incentive there to really push that up to the D3 level. And the, the authors have to keep that in mind because you know, it's, it's a, kind of a way of gaming the system um, that was never designed to be associated with those payments, but Congress decided to do that. You know, without it, They're not scientists in Congress, at least not most of them. And so they didn't really think about the scientific impacts of that. They just thought it would be a good way to get the farmers some payment for, for problems that they were having due to the weather. So basically, what it kind of sounds like is um, there could be some locations that are, are pretty bad off, but the drought monitor folks may not get that information. So that's why it could be maybe a D2 when it really realistically could be D3, D4. Yeah, and you know, part of that is also the the, the problem between short-term and long-term drought because they have to weigh it all together. The short-term indicators might be indicating it's a really bad drought, but the long-term indicators might not show that. So they have to kind of balance that out too. Um, but if you're in agriculture, then you're really, you're really focused on that short-term drought and the impacts of drought. You're not concerned about 
you know, the, the amount of water in the streams or the reservoirs or something. You're just worried about being able to feed your animals or keep your crops alive. I appreciate that. I have a better understanding now when I see these, uh, these monitors issued, I have like some better understanding. So I appreciate that. Shay, I know uh, you had a few questions as well. All right. Yeah, a couple more here. Um, looking at the map that we have up now for the Southeast region, uh, pretty much from, I would say, Edisto Beach all the way up through Eastern North Carolina, um, it's all white. And I've, you know, we've kind of been telling folks here for weeks that that's in, largely in part from Dorian and any uh, sea breeze activity that may be occurring along the immediate coastline. But it really looks more like the path of Dorian. Is that something you could confirm at this point? Or have we moved far enough past that where we're just now identifying these areas? It's starting to fill in, I can see. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's it's because of Dorian. And Umberto might have brought in a little bit of rain right along the coast too, but I think mostly it was Dorian. Uh, what people forget is that hurricanes are a natural part of the climate in the southeast. And in the summer, 30 to 40% of our rain can come from tropical systems. So we need to have that kind of rain. And if you have it, then you're not usually in a drought. If you don't have it, you can go into a drought pretty quickly because a lot of the soils here don't really hold water that well. So I think the reason that you're seeing that cutoff along the, the eastern part of South Carolina and North Carolina is definitely from Dorian. And you brought you just, just tapped on another um, question I had for you. You talk about soil moisture retention. Um, and, and I look across these maps and I think, okay, if you're, if you're measuring water content, if you're just going by rainfall and for the amounts in that area and, and you're deciding some of that is a large factor, but what else is in there? Is there anything else built in there like geology, say soil types? Like if you have clay, clays and loams that retain moisture for longer versus the sand hills, other areas, other types of moisture, is that all factored in as well? I'm sorry, other types of soils. Yeah, I mean, I think when the drought monitor authors look at it, they're mostly looking at the overall picture. You know, I mean, if you think weather is complicated and the climate is complicated, think about soils because the soils vary a lot more even over short distances. So the farmers are very aware of that because they see how things grow on their fields. A uh, little harder to do. I mean, I know in Georgia, the northern part of the state tends to be more clay soils. They hold water pretty well. It's hard to get water out of it. The south part of the state and really the whole coastal plain is very sandy. And so even if you put water on it a couple days later, it's going to be dry again, and you're going to need that really constant inflow of water. Um, so some of that factors in, but I don't think it's a major factor for the drought monitor. Right. Just along, along the land-sea interface, we, we see some of that yeah. inland storm activity over some of these areas that retain more moistures. And so some of that can be factored in um, to, to stave off at least drought along the immediate coastline when it comes to sea breeze circulations, whatnot, that happen here. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I just always like to ask that, you know, what other scientific things are kind of going into the whole product, right? So there's a, I mean, it's amazing to me. It's not a job I would ever want to do because, you know, every time, every week, these authors get calls from maybe 50 or 100 people who are all trying to say, you need to do this in this county, or you need to do that in that county. Um, some of it is driven by wanting to get paid. Some of it is driven by really feeling like the drought monitor is not accurately depicting what's going on. And there's a lot of both. But, I mean, they really take it on the chin sometimes because people are all trying to push these different ideas. And sometimes it's different people from within the same state that really are looking at it in a different way. I think that the drought monitor people really appreciate in South Carolina and North Carolina, they have internal state groups that sit down together ahead of time and they say, well, 
this is kind of what we're thinking. And then they, they went go as a committee to the drought monitor author and they say, this is what we think. And so it's already kind of been through a level of vetting, whereas from a place like Georgia, it's just individual voices that are speaking. And so I, that's an advantage that, that both North and South Carolina have over some of the other states. Yeah, the state climate offices here are phenomenal. We had Melissa Griffith that was a panelist for some time. She was, um, she's really a, a integral part of that as well. She's really into watershed effects and everything else. So um, fascinating. Thank you. Scotty, back to you. Thank you, Shay. Uh, Pam, as we kind of wrap up our topic, uh, I know uh, you have some meteorological background uh, in, in your repertoire. So uh, looking at this pattern setting up, do you think the this rain that we're, we've been getting and, and maybe uh, these events that come up may start to, to um, etch away some of this, uh, this drought? Yeah, I mean, over the last week, there have been places that have gotten up six inches or more in some cases from Nestor. And even before Nestor in South Georgia, we had a, a front that, a warm front that kind of stalled out. And there were a few places in South Georgia that got almost six inches from that, even before Nestor came through. So even though I don't think this the rain that we have had up to this point is going to be enough to get rid of the drought, it's certainly going to change the boundary conditions at the ground. Once you get the ground wet, then of course you could have more daily development of storms and thunderstorms and so on. Now it looks like in the next week we're probably going to have a couple more systems that'll come through. I think we just we just had this front come through. Uh, looks like we could have another one come through in the next few days. So it looks like a fairly rainy pattern uh, for the next week. Um, certainly the cooler temperatures make a big difference too, because with the cooler temperatures, evaporation rates are going way down. Of course, right now the plants are also going into dormancy in a lot of places, you know, the trees are dropping their leaves. And so they're not going to be using very much water. And it's very typical in the winter for drought to really moderate, or in some cases, it looks like it goes away. The question is right around April 1st, is there going to be a good amount of soil moisture um, in the soils once the plants start waking up and they start sucking all that water out of the ground again. And so that's one thing we're going to really have to watch closely over the winter. Right now, I think, um, at least in the short term, the drought probably isn't going to get any worse. There are still some places that haven't gotten that much rain. So I don't know what we'll see on the drought monitor map tomorrow. I probably will expect to see some areas where they will have eased it somewhat because of all the rain. The other places that got missed where the drought will probably continue for a while, but generally over the winter, we expect to see it kind of get reduced in, in drought intensity. Um, and then we'll just have to wait and see what happens once the plants start waking up, once the temperatures start getting warm enough to really suck up that, that water from the, from the soil. Pam, I appreciate that. I was also uh, was going to pull up here the uh, Weather Prediction Center, uh, Climate Prediction Center. Uh, I wanted to show their um, I can screen share here for just a second. Uh, this is from Pivotal Weather. So you can kind of see uh, the southeast uh, over the next six, six to 10 days. Yep. Uh, we're going to see increased opportunities for some precipitation. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the 8 to 14 day, let me get that pulled up, maybe. Well, maybe I see not. it. Okay, so it's up. Yeah, there it is. So you can kind of see, uh, at least they're, they're expecting to see a little bit um, – a little bit more active pattern setting up over the area. So hopefully uh, we can start to see uh, these rainfall events uh, start to uh, knock the, the drought back a little bit. I think I read a report um, 
I think it may be from Brad Panovich. Um, James may have heard this. It would take anywhere between like six to 10 inches of rain in certain portions to kind of uh, get the drought back to being uh, just abnormally dry. So we don't want all of that in the, in at one time, but yeah. we do like to see, we do like to see these uh, shots of uh, rainy weather uh, to, to come across. So Pam. Yeah, yeah. And I think you have to keep in mind that it's fall. So it's, and we, it is usually a pretty dry period and we're starting to now move back into the more active weather season. Um, usually by mid-November for sure, if not sooner, we're going to start to see more frequent fronts coming through. The temperatures are continue going to continue to get cooler. And so I think all those things are going to work to kind of ebb away the, the drought. Definitely. And it looks like this weekend, we can probably talk a little bit about that coming up. Uh, looks like it's going to be a rainy weekend for for most of the Southeast. So Pam, if, if folks want to continue uh, following your work there at uh, the University of Georgia, not only do you do agricultural and climatologists, you're also in charge of the weather network there at UGA. Okay. So uh, kind of tell us uh, how we can keep up with you and what's all going on at the uh, University of Georgia. Sure, one of, one of the things I do is um, I'm the director of the uh, University of Georgia Weather Network, which is 86 stations. Um, that are in a mesonet around the state. They really are there for agriculture, but of course, a lot of other people use those too. Uh, it's similar to the big mesonet in Oklahoma, although certainly they're a lot better funded than we are. Um, but uh, that keeps me pretty busy. I also am a certified consulting meteorologist, so occasionally I'll do testimony in court cases. Um, and I have a, a daily blog that I put out um, if you're interested in reading, it's I just put out short articles about different things that I've read that are interesting. Um, the website for that is site, S-I-T-E dot extension dot U-G-A dot E-D-U slash climate. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. Um, you can find those by kind of searching for me, Southeast Ag Weather or Southeast Ag Climate um, on both Facebook and on Twitter. And so I try to keep busy just sharing a lot of information that I get from other sources. We definitely appreciate you coming on with this, Pam. Uh, go follow her on social media. Coming up after the break, this week in weather news in the Carolinas, including brand new storm surveys talking about tornadoes we saw here in the Carolinas. Uh, I want to toss it over. We kind of briefly uh, hinted at Nestor uh, that affected portions of the Carolinas over the past week. I'm going to hand it off to James Briarton and James uh, Nestor actually uh, produced some uh, severe weather along the coastal areas. Yep, that is absolutely correct, Scotty. We did see a little bit of uh, severe weather, heavy rains at time two that moved through parts of the area. Uh, this first one comes from Ed Piotrowski, a meteorologist in Myrtle Beach, friend of the show, who uh, was relaying the one storm report, the one severe weather storm report, uh, at least in terms of tornadoes, uh, that we got from Nestor moving through the area. National Weather Service in Wilmington confirming an EF0 tornado with estimated winds about 85 miles an hour touching down at about two o'clock in the morning another perfect example of why you should always have that weather radio by your bedside you can see this photo here of that damage on columbia drive uh, this photo uh, sent to ed from jody jordan and so this is what the national weather service went out and they did that storm survey and they were able to get that warning out 12 minutes in advance that is as ed said some darn 
good lead time. Speaking of uh, possible tornadoes, we were watching this very closely yesterday. Uh, we had it up live uh, throughout the day on our streaming platforms here on the Carolina Weather Group. We were watching that cold front come on through, and as it did, we had that heavy band of rain with gusty winds coming on through, and especially as it made it through the Charlotte area. There were times where it was trying to rotate. It never really quite got there until it got into extreme, like Rowan, Davidson County line here, uh, where we had what has now been confirmed as a brief tornado touchdown and kind of like we saw in Myrtle Beach uh, you had some down trees that the weather service took a look at here now this one was actually not warned but you can see where on Doppler radar uh, our friend Brad Panovich was able to locate it and we were actually watching again we were watching this as it moved through the metro area here as that line uh, moved further to uh, the east and into the Raleigh area we actually did have uh, a tornado warning get issued for the uh, the Goldsboro area. And I think, Scotty, you were telling me that the National Weather Service in Raleigh went down there, and they did confirm that was also a brief weak tornado there in the Goldsboro metropolitan area. Is that correct? Yeah, it was a smaller town, uh, I guess, in, in that area, Vanceboro, EF0 tornado. It was on the ground very briefly, but um, created some tree damage, uh, some siding issues on some homes. But, uh, again, that line, as it moved through, I produced that one cell there in the Charlotte area and then went out in the eastern part of the, uh, the state of North Carolina. So uh, I know kind of crazy setup. Those uh, QLCS tornadoes that yeah. uh, we, we don't really have good radar coverage to begin with in our area. And, and those things can kind of just sneak up and do their thing and, and dissolve before we're able to get those warnings issued. They're, you know, they're difficult to spot. They're difficult to warn. They happen so quickly and then combined with the radar situation, especially in the Charlotte area, that makes it very tricky. And I know the broadcast meteorologist and the National Weather Service were coordinating yesterday uh, to keep an eye on that. Shifting gears a little bit, we do have a frost advisory up here for Western North Carolina. So this includes Asheville, places like Watauga, Ash County, north of Greensboro, north of Statesville, so we're talking Western North Carolina kind of cutting on an angle along that Interstate 40 uh, corridor there. We could expect some uh, the first frost of the season to move in overnight, even here in the Charlotte area. As you're heading out to work and school tomorrow morning, we're talking about temperatures in about the 40s or so. Uh, this comes a tad later uh, than we normally see that average first frost, uh, maybe right on schedule for Hickory. But of course, we had those very warm temperatures uh, the last uh, few weeks uh, coming from September into October and it didn't you know make it really nice to get out and about but you know it not only is now delaying maybe the first frost of the season a little bit but also screwed a little bit with those peak colors for uh, the fall leaves so we're now beginning to see some of those prime fall colors and some of the higher elevations again of western North Carolina here in Charlotte um, just a few of the trees have changed over some concern that we might not even get much of a changeover because of that drought condition but again you can see we are now at peak colors uh, in those higher elevations from about 4,000 feet up. Places like Blowing Rock at about 3,500 square feet along up uh, square feet. <laughs> Can you guys tell I've been buying a house? <laughs> square feet came out before I said elevation. So we do now have some of those uh, higher elevation uh, locations where the leaves are turning. And this is where I was going to ask Evan Fisher, uh, the, the guy who lives in western North Carolina but is currently at school in Charleston, if he feels like he's missing out at all, Evan. I do, yeah. I was actually lucky enough to go home last weekend. Um, I got to troll around West North Carolina a little bit, although 
it rained pretty much all day Saturday, um, and then I slept too late on Sunday to go and do any more hiking. So the leaves are definitely changing. The high country, like you said, is definitely starting to show some peak colors. But I would still say, you know, we're somewhere in the next seven to ten days, we're going to start seeing those peak colors move down into the valleys. Um, and it's you know, for a little while we were worried that the colors weren't going to be all that great this fall, maybe because of the drought and leaf science is complicated. Uh, it's looking good, and there's no reason to not go visit. So. I'm trying to get up there one more time before the leaves fall off the trees. Well, and, you know, piggybacking off of our conversation about drought, there was some concern that not getting the vibrant fall colors might impact tourism to the mountains. So if you were putting that off this weekend, folks, is your weekend to go hit the Blue Ridge. So, Scotty, I'll send it back over to you, and I'll try to remember the difference between elevation and square <laughs> footage. Those are two very different things. Thank you for that, James. And uh, one other thing kind of newsworthy, not in the Carolinas, but – uh, the major tornadoes that moved through the Dallas metropolitan area. Um, some controversy with that. One of the uh, NBC affiliates there in Dallas decided to air the Dallas Cowboys game instead of uh, breaking into coverage of an EF3 tornado that went through northern Dallas, Texas, uh, causing all kinds of damage uh, in the northern suburbs. And well, thankfully, uh, no injuries or fatalities, but a lot of damage in they that. They confirmed area. four tornadoes, I think, right? Yeah. After all yeah. Got it. Really interesting story at a, a Home Depot there where a manager decided to close the store and he sent everybody out. Uh, he got the last of the employees out during a, a tour warned system. Um, 30 minutes later, a tornado came and just, I mean, almost leveled the building. It did so much. There, there, there would have most likely been fatalities if people had been in there. Uh, so hats off to that manager for making the right call. I was a little afraid when you started that story, Shay, that you were going to say he forced everyone out into the weather because that wouldn't be good. But you also don't want to be in a big box store like that. So he did it with enough lead time that they were able to get someplace else. I That's think good. it was a, it was a perfect setup. He he read read into it. He knew that he was in a in a zone where tour warned, um, severe storm warned with tour warnings also issued from from coming up from the south, and he could just sort of. You know, he made the right call there. Scotty, you... this... oh, go ahead, Scotty. Yeah, I was going to say all of this happening while the Dallas Cowboys were playing a football game. I mean, this, yeah, that's a crazy situation Sunday. Night. Well, and I think and I can't speak for NBC or the Dallas station, but I think that must have played into at least momentarily. And I'm just speculating. So I'm just talking about this conversationally the do we break in or do we go and i know they waited something like 10 minutes to finally get on the air and they've come out and issued an apology to say we should have cut in right away as soon as that tornado warning was happening i saw one take on it that was kind of like it's a lose-lose because you get into these scenarios where you interrupt a highly rated highly viewed event and everyone who's not in that warning like we've talked about before starts calling the station and saying put the game back on now mind you as the station admitted, they should have interrupted right away. I, I haven't looked at the timing, but the being that they apologized for waiting about 10 minutes to come on, I wonder, were they waiting for the confirmation of the tornado on the ground as opposed to just the radar-indicated rotation in the warning? I don't know, but absolutely. I mean, football game or not football game, you know, they've even admitted they James, should have cut in. James, you and I, we were conversing back on our chat internal chat we I, I can't remember was it the abc or cbs station out in dallas they had some storm trackers out there and mm -hmm. literally one of the guys i mean he drove right uh, i don't want to say right through the middle of it but it was like 
five, six hundred yards in front of him. Uh, yeah, I believe I believe that was the CBS station. Yeah, that was on uh, Interstate six thirty five, and so the storm chaser is chasing this. He stops because of all the wind and uh, the rain. You just couldn't see in front of you. He started. Uh, to move forward and maybe a quarter of a mile up. I mean, they were cars flipped over. There was debris. There was roofs. You could hear him on the line shouting out to people, are you okay? And this storm chaser could have potentially found himself being one of the first good Samaritan first responders on the scene, if, if need be. And I know some of the storm chasers try to educate themselves on some level of first aid for that exact reason. Yeah, it was. Crazy situation there in Dallas, and I'm very, we're all very thankful to hear uh, no major injuries or fatalities. And like Shay said, good, good, with, good on the uh, store manager there at Home Depot uh, to get his folks out of there before um, before the worst of the part of the storm moved in. So, Shay, I do want to hand it off to you. We're we're still in the midst of tropical season. We're kind of winding down. But it uh, looks like we may have another disturbance developing somewhere in the Bay of Campeche. So, Shay, what's going on there? Yeah, we are watching yet another area, and we always we, we keep watching this connection between the Western Caribbean and the uh, the Eastern Pacific, Eastern North Pacific. Sometimes you get these this that's an area of equatorial activity there, where um, you get some of that monsoonal trough, just enough to kick up over this area, and you get that Western Caribbean some moisture generated. Uh, the last one, Nestor, developed in this very same area: Southern Mexico, Guatemala, uh, Yucatan Peninsula area. And, um, and we're looking at yet another one. We go ahead and share a screen. So we'll go ahead and dive right in. Let me know when you can see this. So we have the NHC map here. Um, this, this area is tagged as 30% chance. Shay, I'm going to interrupt you. I think we're looking at something with a mobile phone and texting yeah. on it. We got the uh, zoom okay. up. All right. Let's see. Let me pull this over then. Oh, there it is. There it is. We got it. All right. I guess I'll just try to drag these one after the other over into the screen here. That's fine. I thought I was sharing the correct screen. Either way. Um, so here's the NHC map. We have a 20% chance next 48 hours, 30% chance next five days. One thing about this system is that uh, the area, the Bay of Campeche is very warm. This is a prime area for development. However, there's going to be some upper shear in part in this system that we're seeing right now. It's going to be joining a cold front and riding up along it, up towards Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi areas, the, the northern Gulf of Mexico coast. This storm is likely to ride up the front, up on the windward side of the Appalachian Mountains. So we don't expect it to, you know, really cross over into the southeast region. This front looks like it's going to stall here for a day or so, and this is going to ride up along it with a surge of moisture. For some of these areas, even in eastern Tennessee, uh, is definitely needing some rain. There's some areas of drought in this area. That was our topic of the show tonight, so it's going to help these areas as well. I'll go ahead and pull the COD imagery. And you can see right now what this, what's going on with the system. Nothing is really well defined. We have a blow up of storms over here, another one over here, Guatemala, Belize, southern Mexico. Um, this is really a broad area of, of um, disorganized shower activity. And if we look at the visible satellite, you can kind of get a better idea of that. I mean, there's one low explosion of storms here, but really the broader scope of the rotation in general is a, is a lot bigger than this. Um, and it's very disorganized. It doesn't look like there's any one particular surface low associated with you can see the upper shear coming from southwest to northeast across its northwestern quadrant and this eventually is going to lift to the north and get pulled along the frontal boundary if you look at the gfs this pretty much paints the picture right now we have a we call it bill walsh channel five we call the dome of delight over the southeast region in time that's going to head to the east 
and allow for the system to lift up along this cold front. And you can see the surge of moisture heading up into Louisiana. So the northern Gulf states seem to be on the watch for this because there could be some, some heavy, severe weather going on across these areas. And we see that surge of moisture. Um, let's take a look at the WPC QPF showing the seven-day outlook for all of this to occur. So it looks like this is all going to happen between the next three and seven days where the surge of moisture is going to come up. So you're talking about quite a bit of rain. Uh, I'd say anywhere from three to six inches, according to this, maybe even upwards of seven uh, in some areas. So uh, just be on the lookout for plenty of rainfall to be coming to these areas the next few days. And this may spread a little east, too. I don't think this map is done uh, populating to the east as well on that side. So with that, I'll yeah. Sorry, I'm jump in real quick. If you'll hold that map, you can definitely see over the, over the southwestern Appalachians where that orographic enhancement uh, in that southeasterly flow, I guess you could say, up over the mountains is going to be causing more and more precipitation, which is going to be very beneficial for the drought-stricken areas um, in northwest South Carolina and North Carolina and even parts of Georgia. No, that's a great point. Um, I think um, we have some of that lifting that we talked about in the last show um, where you get that, that warm sector really riding up, up the uh, mountaintops, right? We go upslope. And then it lifts up into that cooler pool of water and you get lots of rainfall. So, yeah, you're exactly right. The western uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, even upstate Georgia, very far corner. Uh, we could be looking at higher rainfall than that when it's all said and done. So we'll have to wait and see what happens here. It could, it could get a little bit interesting for western portions of the southeast region here in the next couple of days as this map develops. And I think that's it. I'm going to pass it back to you, Scotty. Any other all questions? Right. Thank you for that, Shay. We appreciate it. So we'll keep our eyes on that and maybe it can bring us some beneficial rainfall uh, this weekend. So that's uh, going to be a wrap for tonight. Next week, uh, can you believe it's almost winter time? We're going to be talking about winter weather 101 is what we're going to be titling it. Uh, you hear a lot of phrases in the wintertime, uh, polar vortex, freezing rain, uh, all these kinds of things. And we're going to be talking about that next week. We're going to kind of look into the terminology and kind of give you the facts where some outlets like to really um, boost things up. We're going to give you the cold hard facts per se, since it's winter time. And uh, with this, we're going to have Brad Panovich and Tim Buckley, uh, Tim Buckley out of WFNY in Greensboro and Brad Panovich and w at WCNC in Charlotte. Uh, both those uh, gentlemen will be joining us next week as we kind of look into uh, the winter season and, and what it may be bringing us. So, uh, we look forward to that. We hope you will join us uh, again. Please uh, remember, if you see uh, any weather guests, any topics in the weather world that you want us to discuss, please let us know. Uh, you can submit those uh, in a number of ways, and we will work our, be our, uh, our best to get those guests or topics on the show. So uh, don't forget that. So until next week, we hope you have a great weekend, and we will see you back here next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Weather.